Next, our scripture reading is from Genesis 25, 21 through 28. This can be found on pages 19 to 20 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home today as our gift from from us to you. So please just grab one. Um, We'd love for you to have that. Again, Genesis 25, 21 through 28. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Carrie Lynn. Well, this is weird. Uh, If uh, you're new or maybe you missed it, um, I do have to say this is my final Sunday here at Christ Community, which is one of the strangest sentences I've ever uttered. Um, We have been here, my wife Ashley and I, for over five years. We came in June of 2014. It was actually July, so this month, five years ago, that uh, Bill asked me to preach my first sermon. He gave me an easy topic. It was just on sin. Uh, That's, you know, this morning is Jacob and Esau. That's an easy story. That'll be fun, too, for us. Um, So I think this is just what it is to be here. Um, And boy, it has been a a wonderful run. I came as a part of our pastoral residency program, which is just two years. Um, And then I just, I just didn't leave. Um, Just like, gosh, this guy's still here. Um, But no, what a gift it was to be asked to stay um, for another three years. Um, And it was a very difficult decision for us to leave. Um, But we are going to uh, go back to our alma mater, um, Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas. I got called about an opportunity to serve as the, the campus chaplain there, um, and through a lot of prayer and discussion with people that we love and, and trust and respect and um, processing all of this, have sensed God's leading to step into that role, that opportunity. I'm going to get to preach a lot to college students and do pastoral care in their lives and some other really fun things as well, um, and just felt like it was a singularly unique opportunity to give back um, to an institution that has already given so much to us. Um, Christ community is on that list for us. Our lives will never be the same because of our time here, and, uh, and Christ community is more than just a building or a series of buildings since we're one church in five locations. Uh, Christ community is made up of the people. It's made up of you, um, and I don't have a bad thing to say. I really don't. I love each and every single one of you, even if you're brand new here this morning. Um, I, I'm glad that you're exploring this church, um, checking us out, and I hope that uh, you'll find it to be as wonderful a home as we did. Um, Last Sunday, uh, we got to hear an incredible message from a professor that is at our partner seminary, Dr. Peter Cha, and he actually did preach out of Genesis, which is the series that we're in right now, and he preached on Genesis 12 and Abraham's call, and he introduced this idea of creative dislocation, 
and he talked about how uh, God, and he patterns in creative dislocation. It's the story of Abraham, it's the story of Jacob, it's the story of Esther and Ruth, it's the story of Jesus. Who, who was more creatively dislocated than Jesus to come from heaven to earth? And this is how God moves and, and works. And he introduced this idea, because I'm being creatively dislocated by my own choosing and God's leaving and my family is, but he introduced this idea that you don't actually have to leave to be creatively dislocated, that everything can change around you or a pastor can leave <laughs> and you enter into a, a season of creative dislocation. And, and the big idea from Dr. Cha's message was that these are moments where God breaks in and does something really incredible. And I believe that's what's going to happen in my life, in my family's life, and, and in the life of this congregation as well. So thank you for the opportunity to serve as one of your pastors over the last five years. Um, I could keep going on and on, but I also have a lot of words to say about Genesis 25. <laughs> so we probably should do that. Just know that I love you, and I'm grateful for you, and I'll be praying for you. And it has been a privilege uh, to get to stand up here occasionally and, uh, and open up God's word together, as well as a privilege uh, to unite my life and my family's life with yours. So thank you. Let's pray. Oh, gosh. I, ha I haven't even preached yet. <laughs> it might be really bad. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that it's not bad. Um, not <laughs> I pray that in my heart every week. <laughs> I preach uh, not, not for my name at all, but it's, I pray it's not bad because your word is too good for bad sermons to be preached. And this story in Genesis 25 is incredible. It's already touched my life, and I hope it's touched the lives of those in first service, and I pray that it would do the same during this service, Lord. I pray, as I do each and every time that I get an opportunity to preach, that I would decrease and diminish while you increase, Lord, because this is all, all and always about you, and we're grateful for it. Um, I pray for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, back when I served as a youth pastor, I occasionally would lead my middle school students, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, through a simple activity that was designed to get them to look just a little bit into the future. I would hand each and every one of them a piece of blank paper, and I would ask them to write a letter to themselves, a future version of themselves, and not 12 years in the future, but just 12 months, one year from today, and I said, ask yourselves this question, what do you want to be true of yourself one year from today? And once they were finished writing their letters, I would give them all an envelope, they would fold up the letter, put it in, I'd instruct them to write their address on the envelope, and I would keep them in my office for a year, and then after 12 months had passed, I'd take them off the shelf, I would slam a stamp, slam a stamp, <laughs> slap a stamp on each one of them and put them in the mail. And I didn't often hear from the students upon receiving their letters, but there is one particularly memorable exception. This student had completely forgotten about the activity, and his own letter broke him down and brought him to tears. You see, just one year later, none of what he had written to himself was true. Instead, reading his letter revealed unmet expectations, unrealized dreams, unfulfilled hopes, and all of it, almost entirely, because of decisions he had made. Because of choices he had pulled the trigger on. And what was fascinating to me is that even at the relatively young age of 13 or 14, 
This young man grasped that his life was not what he wanted it to be and, this is the key part, and that he had no one to blame except himself. I wish I had been that mature when I was his age. And reflecting upon that activity this week reminded me of its power. In fact, it's so powerful, I believe, that I want to set it before you right now. Now, I don't have a couple hundred pieces of paper or envelopes, but what I do have for you is a question. A question. What does future you want you to do? What does future you want you to do? What would an older version of yourself come to you and say if he or she could? What gaps might there be in your life right now that you should be working to close by then? What is dominating your landscape today, tomorrow, this week that just might be something that's a vague memory by a year from now? Now, I'm convinced that this is a powerful question. On any day, in any month, during any season, but for the Brandis family right now, we need this. Because again, by our own choosing and by God's leading, we are being creatively dislocated. And, and life transitions, big life moves, starting new jobs, moving from a city to a small town, this life transitions, they cause life upheaval. In so many ways right now, our life is upside down and backwards. And I have felt in these fragile moments of transition just how easy it is to trade something for a short-term gain today that I'm going to regret deeply tomorrow. In these fragile moments of transition, I'm realizing just how easy it is to sacrifice something that I don't think is a big deal in the moment, only to immediately regret it. Well, case in point is actually our brand new refrigerator. Purchased just back in February of this year. Isn't she a beaut? <laughs> We're really grateful for AB May and for a gold membership because our old fridge uh, bit the dust and we got this one and we have loved it. Now, I got to tell you, I would love to take this fridge with me when I move, right? But in a foolish, short-sighted moment, I was so scared. We've never sold a home before, right? And so I'm not too embarrassed to tell you that I was terrified that no one was going to buy our house ever. It was just going to sit there and sit there and sit there and we wouldn't be able to buy a house in Sterling and we wouldn't have anywhere to live and my kids would end up on the street in a box. And, and so... In a very short-sighted moment, when I'm there with the seller's disclosure form, I have a choice. Is this fridge staying, or is it not staying? And I put that it was staying, right? It's like, it's like the forehead slap emoji in real life. No one was going to change their offer on our house based on this fridge, and of course somebody bought our fridge. And, I mean, somebody bought our house, and of course they want us to leave the super nice fridge. And now that I put that we were leaving it, they have the negotiating power. So, folks, I got to tell you, this fridge will remain at 605 West 90th Street because of my short-sighted decision, right? This was my Esau moment with my refrigerator, which is not a big deal. Seems like a big deal, kind of is a big deal. It's not really a big deal, right? It's not actually a big deal, but what is? What is? What else might be? What, what might I trade today that future me is going to deeply regret? 
What does future me want me to do? What does future you want you to do? And I need this message because when I read through the book of Genesis, which is what we've been studying as a church, when I read through this book, the person that I resonate most with, the person whose story seems to me to be the most like mine, is Esau's story. And we don't get a whole lot of it. We're going to hear more about why we don't get a whole lot of it in a little bit. We don't get a lot about Esau's story, but when I read it, sounds a lot to me like he is Paul Brandis. And what we're going to find out is that Esau becomes the ultimate warning story, that he trades what future him would have done anything to reverse, that he trades away the promises of God for a moment of pleasure, for a moment of satisfaction. Will we do the same? Now, we've got to back up just a little bit. Because we've had the privilege of hearing from some guest preachers over the last couple of weeks, but that's made our Genesis series a little bit spotty. Now, you don't have to miss any of these messages. All of them will be posted onto our Brookside Campus podcast sermon feed. Uh, We're going to post other campuses' audio on those days, and so you can listen to all of the sermons in the Genesis series, but we just didn't get to hear all of them here at the Brookside Campus. And last week at our other campuses and then on our podcast feed, uh, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's long-awaited son, Isaac, got married last week at our other campuses. Dr. Chaw preached here, but at our other campuses we talked about the story of Isaac and Rebecca. And actually that account of Rebecca being found to marry Isaac is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. And so God clearly cares about this story. And I think why he cares is because he is communicating through this story that his plan to grow and build a family through Abraham will continue on undeterred, unimpeded. It is going to happen because what God says he's going to do, he does, always. And so that's why we spend so much time discovering the story of Isaac and Rebekah. But what we have learned in this series over and over and over again is that God's plan moving forward often does not look how we would expect it to look. And we find another example of that in our passage for this morning, Genesis 25, in the beginnings of the story of Jacob and Esau. Verse 20 of Genesis 25 tells us that Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. And then, well... Well, then nothing for a long time again, because just like Sarah before her, and as we'll see soon, Rachel after her, Rebecca is barren. Isaac and Rebecca can't have kids. But then we find ourselves at verse 21, which reads this way, Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Well, it sounds easy, doesn't it? But verse 26, if you look ahead, reveals that Isaac was 60 when this happened. 40 when he marries her and 60 when this request is granted. So yes, God said yes to Isaac's prayer after 20 years of waiting. I can only begin to imagine. And then you actually get to their kids, Jacob and Esau. And right from the drop, things are not great. Esau and Jacob, in fact, If you're reading closely, they ought to remind you of another version of Cain and Abel. Two brothers who are constantly warring with one another, unable to get along. 
From the passage that Carrie Lynn re read, we, we see that they are even struggling with one another, warring with one another in her womb, doing battle. And then how are they born, right? Esau comes out first, but Jacob is right behind, grabbing onto the heel, almost as if there was a race to the finish line. Almost as if right from the drop, Jacob is trying to take something that does not belong to him in the first place, the birthright, which in their cultural moment is of the utmost significance. The story fast forwards, the boys grow up, and the narrator includes this bit about what the boys were like, Esau and Jacob, right? Esau is a manly man, he's a hairy hunter, Jacob is more quiet, he's more reserved, and you're sort of like, what's the big deal here? Why are we including this? Our, my boys are different, kids are different from one another. Well, it seems as though the narrator is including this point to indicate just how lousy Isaac and Rebekah are as parents, right? Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, they didn't give me a manual when we brought the boys home from the hospital, but I'm pretty sure that you're not supposed to pick favorites. But here we see that both Isaac and Rebekah, they had chosen a favorite. And just as an aside, can I say how weird it is, right, that Isaac chooses his favorite based on the fact that he likes meat? I mean, I like meat as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to use it to choose my favorite kid. Right? It's just kind of strange. You sort of get this sense from the narrator that maybe Isaac and Rebecca have fallen down on the parenting job a little bit. Because as we continue here, right, it doesn't get any better for Jacob and Esau. Neither one of them comes off looking good in this story. Look with me at verses 29 through 32. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to his brother Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Well, Jacob said back to him, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, no one, again, looks good in this story, right? Jacob almost certainly planned this moment out. This is almost certainly premeditated. You know, he, he gets the stew going right when he knows that his brother's about to walk in the door. He adds the spices. He makes it smell really good. He is taking advantage of what he knows is going to be a moment of weakness for his brother. How long did he plan this? How long did he perfect that recipe? You know, Jacob is no hero, but at the very least, the only redeemable thing you can say about Jacob is that he is pursuing something, the birthright, that is good in and of itself. Or that's the only redeeming thing. Uh, Esau, he doesn't have anything that is redeeming about him in this story. He just comes off looking not great any way you slice it. And in fact, the original language of this story draws out the point even more regarding Esau. The narrator seems to want to make the point that Esau is sort of blubbering and tripping over himself using something like caveman language. Literally, in the original Hebrew, it's, give me some of that red red. That's what he calls it, red red. And that verb he uses for eat is typically reserved for feeding animals. So basically, Esau comes to his brother and says, give me num-num. <laughs> I mean, that's the idea. That's what the narrator wants to draw out. Now, Esau loves food too much, and it turns him into some sort of idiot to get more. 
And now again, Jacob is not the hero here, right? Jacob has his own issues. God is going to deal with him, right? God gets into a wrestling match with him in a few chapters. We get way more of Jacob. Today, though, we're, we're focusing on Esau, right? Jacob's got his own issues, but what we see from Esau is that he is completely and utterly enslaved to his appetites, and he trades something that is of eternal significance for a bowl of red red? Really? Now, what's at stake here? What's at stake here? Because even in their conversation, Jacob and Esau, they're going on and on about the birthright. It seems even from the way they were born, the birthright is a big deal. So what is this? The birthright doesn't mean a whole lot in our cultural moment, but in their day, not only would the firstborn son receive a double share of the inheritance of all the other siblings, so twice the amount of money of every other sibling, but the firstborn was the place of privilege. It garnered the most respect. This is a big deal in just your average family in this day and time. But we're not dealing with just an average family, are we? Who is this family that we're talking about? Their grandfather is Abraham, the guy that God showed up to not just one time, not just two times, but three times. God dropped in in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17 to tell this Abraham guy, their grandfather, just how much he was going to use and bless the entire world through their family. So the birthright in Abraham's family isn't just double the money. It isn't just respect. The birthright in Abraham's family is the opportunity to be singularly and uniquely used by God to bless the entire world. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so almost certainly, given their family of origin, Esau and Jacob have heard the stories. Can't you just picture them, right? Yahweh this and Yahweh that. God's promises. Sure, mom, we get it. Grandpa Abraham up on the mountain with Isaac. Come on already. They've heard the stories. It doesn't seem like they're sinking in, does it? I mean, Jacob is likely only after the extra money and respect that would come with receiving his brother's birthright. And Esau, since he's about to sell it for a bowl of soup, clearly doesn't care at all. None of the characters, neither of them in this story, see the significance or sniff out the stakes of what is happening here. But do we? Do we as the readers who have the benefit of the entire Bible in front of us, do we see the significance of what is happening here in these verses in Genesis 25? You see, God introduces himself to the world. As we go on in the story, as we unveil more and more, God chooses a particular way of introducing himself to the world. The God of the universe introduces himself as what? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Esau? No. But that was on the table for Esau. It could have been. It could have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but it's not. It's the God instead of Abraham, Isaac, and who? The God of Jacob. That is what is at stake in this moment. And what happens? Verses 32 and 33. Esau said, 
I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And these tragic words. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. I mean, this is how temptation works, isn't it? Desire clouds reason. Consequences vanish from the imagination. God's promises become worthless. Future you is silenced. The soup just smells so good. And as it overcomes us, it is almost as if God is dead to us. All for that split second of relief. For that moment of satisfaction. Because that's how long it lasts, isn't it? The realization of the decision you just made hits. Reality comes back into focus. Regret sets in immediately. I know it did for Esau. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. I wasn't even clam chowder. (laughs) Come on, man. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. I mean, do you see how brusquely this account ends? Esau ate, drank, rose, and went. For once the deed is done, there is nothing more to say. And in so many ways, this is another retelling of the Adam and Eve story from Genesis 3. We've seen this pattern, haven't we? A test is given, but failed. Adam and Eve failed. Cain failed. Noah, after the ark, failed. The builders of the great tower in Genesis 11 failed. Even Abraham, the father of our faith, failed several times over in fact, right? Then Lot and his family failed. And now Esau, another test, another failure. What was it? What was Esau's failure? What was his sin? The end of verse 34 gives us the answer. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau treated God's promises with contempt. He cast them to the side. He betrayed his future self for a moment of satisfaction, for a bowl of soup. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 12, uses Esau, uses his story as some of the sternest words of warning that we have in our Bible. Those verses read this way. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by that many would become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau. It could have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It could have been, but instead his name is dropped from that line, and it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is where Esau's name gets inserted. It's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's see to it that no one is unholy like Esau. That's a heck of a trade. What happened with Esau? Well, he sold his birthright for a single meal. Next slide. For you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Because you see, Esau's story actually gets worse. 
the author is reflecting not just upon Genesis 25, the passage we're looking at this morning, but also upon Genesis 27. In Genesis 25, Esau, he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, for a single meal. But then in Genesis 27, Jacob deceives him. And Jacob steals Isaac's one and only blessing. No birthright for Esau, no blessing for Esau. And when he realized the error of his ways, when he realized what a fool he had been, Genesis 27, 34 reads this way. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father Isaac, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He realized it, but just too late. It did no good. Future Esau regretted his choices. Future Esau would have done anything to go back. Future Esau could not believe his foolishness. All for red, red. But future Esau could not change the past. So future Esau died in regret. It could have been the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Esau, he could have been one of the fathers of the Jewish people. He could have been the focus of much of the Old Testament. It could have been his family that was in the genealogy of Jesus. But it's not. It's Jacob instead. And again, read Jacob's story. You're like, really, that guy? God chooses Jacob in spite of Jacob. That's coming. It could have been for Esau. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians like you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus. He's writing to us. If you're here this morning following Jesus. And he's writing in Hebrews 12 to say to us, you need to take heed because you could go the way of Esau. See to it that no one goes the way of Esau. See to it. See to it. So let me ask you again, what does future you want you to do? What does future you want you to do? I think there's three lessons in Esau's story for us this morning. Here's the first. There are things in life that you can lose and never get back. There are things in life that you can lose and never get back. Boy, that's a cheery thought for my last Sunday here, isn't it? Woo! But is this not exactly what Esau's story reminds us of, warns us of? And what kind of pastor would I be if I did not set this down before, not just you, but you and me this morning, and took a moment to reflect upon this? There are things in life that we can lose and never get back. Because I'll be the first to admit it, I struggle to believe this. Like intellectually, I believe this, but in my heart, in the way that I live my life, far more often I live my life as a choose-your-own-adventure story that I sort of just blindly think is going to always have a happy ending. And part of it, for me, I know, is because I've given in to cheap grace. There are days and times and hours in which I believe in cheap grace as opposed to real grace. I know the truth, and this is true, that God is always going to forgive me and pick me back up. So I have that blinder on. It's true, but I put that blinder on and I forget that there are real consequences for my sin. 
there are tragic ripple effects of the bad choices that I make that affect not just me, but affect those in my life, those I care about, those I love. Yes, God will always forgive me. Absolutely, that is true. But that does not mean that the choices we make don't matter. You know the stories, don't you? I mean, you've seen or you've experienced how quickly we can lose so much. The relationship ruined with a word. Integrity vanished all for a quick financial gain. The way our spouse or kids will never be the same because of your controlling abuse. A birthright traded for a bowl of soup. There are things in life that we can lose and never get back. And friends, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus wants to save you from your sins. There's, it's, it's way more than just that. That's the core of it. That's the bright, hot center of the, the gospel message. But there's a lot more in it than just that. Jesus doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He wants to save you from future regret. Walking the way of Jesus over and above walking the way of Esau is not just right. It is better. Walking the way of Jesus is the only way to living a whole and connected life. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we all want? So what does future you want you to do? Next, your appetites can serve you or enslave you. Your appetites can serve you or enslave you. In their rightful place, our appetites and our desires are good. They come from God, so of course they're good. They have their origin in the source of all that is good. So our appetites, our desires properly ordered are good. Absolutely. So yes to alcohol in moderation. Yes to sex in marriage. Yes to binging Stranger Things season three. But not during dinner time with your kids, right? Properly ordered desires. Because the moment that those desires get out of whack, the moment that they're improperly ordered, then they're not serving you, they're enslaving you. Our desires can enslave us. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, he writes this. For many of whom I have often told you about and now tell you even with tears. Stop there for a second, right? Don't miss the intro. Paul is saying, I have told you about this over and over and over again, and I'm telling you about it again because it's something that clearly you keep forgetting. And as I'm writing these words, I am doing it with tears in my eyes because of how big of a deal this is. What's a big deal, Paul? Well, there's people that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Whoa. How do I do that? How might I avoid that? How could I avoid walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ? He goes on, he tells us, if you're going to do that, those people have their end of destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. What does it look like to make the cross of Jesus Christ your enemy? It looks like making, letting your belly be your God. That's what it looks like. 
It's letting your desires rule over you. It's letting your desires enslave you instead of serve you. That's what it looks like to walk as an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and church, I don't know about you, but I need this message this morning. I need Esau's warning. I need Hebrews 12. I need Philippians 3. And I don't need the warning just broadly. I, I do need that, the broad warning about my desires and my appetites. But I'm, I'm going to be really, really, really honest with you in my final sermon. I need to tell you that I need the reminder about my desire for food and drink specifically. Now, part of the reason I resonate so much with Esau's story is I guarantee I would have sold my birthright for that bowl of soup. It's like 110 degrees this week. I had a lunch meeting and a dinner meeting. I got soup both times. I'm walking into that house. Jacob would have just sprinkled it in, and I'd be like, come on, let's go. Pass the bread, right? I've shared from this platform before about my ongoing struggles with my weight, with food. I have shared about how I too often turn to the comfort of good food rather than turning to the comfort of the good God who provided it for me. I would have been Esau, I know it. And this is really difficult, um, it always would be difficult to preach on something so vulnerable, but the last time that the application leaned me into this, I at least was headed the right direction on my bathroom scale. <laughs> I was losing weight the last time I preached on this, lately not so much. In this busy and stressful season, what I'm recognizing in myself is that my appetite, my desire for food and drink has enslaved me far more than it has served me. So I'm grateful for grace. I'm grateful for mercy, for forgiveness, for restoration. I'm grateful for second chances and third chances and fourth chances too. And even though it's hard to swallow, see what I did there? I am grateful for the warning and the challenge that exists in Esau's story. And I'm not just grateful for me, I'm grateful for you too. Because I think we need this. I think we all need this. It might not be food for you, but which of your desires is enslaving you right now? Or in danger of enslaving you right now? Because you see, the way of the world is a little different on this whole topic. In fact, the way of the world says that why would you ever deny yourself anything? The way of the world says your desires are the deepest parts of who you are. That's not true for me. I've discovered in my own life that that's a lie. The deepest part of who I am is that I am a son of the king of the universe. My desires don't define me. They are important, but I'm the son of the king of the universe far before I'm someone that likes to have soup and bread. My desires don't define me, but the way of the world says that your desires are the deepest part of the way who you are. And to deny yourself anything would be deny who you are. I'm just not so sure about that. Have you questioned that too? Have you wondered if there is a better way? True freedom is not found in the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want. True freedom is about finding the right constraints and embracing those. True freedom is about finding the right master, Jesus, and submitting yourself to him. True freedom is about the ability to say no to something you think you want today for something that future you is going to be really, really glad that you said no to. So again, 
what does future you want you to do? Finally, you can decide today who you want to be tomorrow. You can decide today who you want to become tomorrow. That is the positive way of framing Esau's story, isn't it? Because we got a whole lot of negativity in the room right now. I'm with you there, right? But the positive way to think about this is that you can choose today who you want to be tomorrow, right? And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But who we are is the sum of the choices and the decisions that we have made so far in our lives. And so today, right now, in this moment, are you going to choose to walk the way of Jesus or are you going to choose to walk the way of Esau? Because you might have a, a soup moment where you trade everything away for something so silly. But far more often, it's those little moments. It's the millions of tiny decisions that don't seem like they're a big deal because we forget that we are always being formed. You are always, in every second, becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus. And our choices matter. Our choices form us, and they shape us. There are tests, and I don't know about you, but I have gotten some failing grades. Just like Esau. Just like Esau. And so I wonder, as I walk throughout this, I'm reading Esau's story, and I'm going, he failed. I know that I fail, so how are we ever going to pass? Right? That's my question. Because I've learned enough, I've lived long enough, I've failed enough, I know it's not going to be me. I'm never going to pass the test that's set in front of me. Not the big one anyway. And here's the secret, folks. The only way that any of us pass the big test of life is not through anything that you have done or not done. The only way you pass that test is by saying, I can't even take it. i got to tap someone in to take it for me. Because there's only one person who has passed the big test of life. He came not through the line of Esau, but he came through the line of Jacob. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Adam failed, sure. Cain failed after him. Esau failed. You and I, we fail. But church, hear the good news this morning. Jesus Christ passed. He passed. There was a moment, wasn't there, where Jesus was pretty hungry. He was in the desert. He was about to begin his ministry. So the Spirit cast him out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus didn't eat. That is being truly hungry, is it not? That's not coming in from a day in the field. He is starving in this moment. And what happens? Satan comes to him. He knows who Jesus is. He knows how powerful Jesus is. And he offers him, right? He offers him the trade. It's the Esau moment for Jesus. What's going to happen? Satan says, I know you can turn these stones into bread. There's the test for Jesus right there. He's hungry. He's starving. Trade this right here. Trade the redemption of all things because you're hungry and I know you're hungry. Folks, I'm here to tell you, if that had been me in the desert, I would have said, pass the butter. But Jesus denied himself. Aren't we glad he did? And Jesus continued to deny himself. He walked the way of the Father perfectly with obedience every day, every hour, every minute. He finally did drink, though, didn't he? Remember that in the garden? If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. 
But the father said, no, that one you need to drink. And he did. He did. He drank that cup and he died for all the times that I and you and we failed. He died so that we could live. He died so that we could pass the test. Because death couldn't hold him. Because it's the Father, it's the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit dwells inside each and every single one of us who have thrown ourselves on Jesus. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living within you this morning. Why? Why do you have that? It is so when you have a test that comes up, you can pass it. So that you can choose not the way of Esau, not the way of Paul, not your way, but so that you can choose Jesus' way by the power of the Spirit. And in that, experience life and life to the fullest. So again, what does future you want you to do? Did you know there's an answer? There is an answer. Future you, I'm going to give it to you. Future you wants you to run to Jesus today and every day. Future you wants you to run to Jesus and walk in his way today and every way and today and every day and I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Because what is communion? What is communion if it is not an opportunity to run to Jesus? Communion is a meal. We're going to eat here in a moment. But it's not, a, it's not a bowl of soup that destroys. Communion is a meal. It is the bread and blood of Jesus that restores. This is what we believe communion to be. It's an opportunity to taste and touch and see the good news message of redemption, of restoration that exists in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, can I tell you how thrilled I am that you're here with us? Thank you for trusting us with your time. It's never easy to walk in the doors of the church, but if you don't follow Jesus, that's extra hard. And we wouldn't want you to say something about yourself that isn't true. We understand how it would be hard to submit your desires to somebody that you're not sure is real or maybe aren't sure that he offers what he says he offers. We get that. But I want to ask you, who are you looking to that will be able to forgive you when you fall? What are you looking to that might protect you from regret I invite you to consider Jesus if you're here this morning and are not following him.